Will you join me in praying once more? Almighty God, we are here for you. And so, Father, I pray that you would do the work that only you can do. By the power of your spirit, you would supernaturally soften our hearts, Lord, to not only be able to hear your word, but to receive it. And Father, through the word, through the power of your word and the work of your spirit, God, you will change us and conform us greater into the image of your holy and perfect son. It's in that name, the name of your son, Jesus Christ. I ask and pray all of these things. Amen. So today, tonight, we will continue our teaching through the book of Luke. I'm finishing up the 14th chapter tonight. We find that Christ has once again found a great crowd that is following him around as he does his ministry. And he does what he does so often in that he turns to them and offers them a teaching. Uh, one commentator, talking about the entirety of chapter 14, says that Christ's pathway in this chapter is like a, a tornado. He is going through and causing all sorts of disruptions and stirs. And so he turns to this crowd and seems he turns to this crowd that seems interested in him, that's following him, and he does not offer an altar call. He does not um, offer a baptism service or for people to come forth and to confess their faith, but rather he offers a teaching that is a hard pill to swallow. A teaching that not only disrupts his severe critics, as we heard from last week with Timothy preaching, but also um, destroys any Jesus bandwagoners, people who are following him, that might be going on. In this, we will see the emphasis of our passage for tonight, that is Christ is not concerned about numbers when it comes to his disciples, but rather he is concerned about the commitment of his disciples that follow him. So we see, starting in verse 25, it says, Now great crowds accompanied him. He turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There's a lot to unpack here, and we surely will. Um, most of you have a title above this section that probably states something along the lines of the cost of discipleship. Um, this passage is certainly about that, but there's something that we should highlight first before we start to understand what this discipleship is and why it is so costly. This passage begs the question, who is Christ? All of us can answer that in many different ways, and we can add to that um, definition. But we should stop for a moment and consider what is being asked of here and how polarizing this is. Here's a man who has come along, and he is stating to a large crowd of people around him that the only way to be his disciple is that if they hate every substantial relationship they have, including their very own lives. Can you imagine the shock and impact this would have had for the hearers, for those following him? Um, as people who live in the modern day West, we can see that this is certainly polarizing. But for a Jew this time, this was to forsake everything. It had a much greater impact and deeper meaning than we realize. The Jewish home was the center place of all life. It was where education took place, production happened, work was done, fun was enjoyed. To tell someone to hate everything and everyone that they were dependent on would have been a very hard slap in the face. And what about your own life? Christ says that we are to hate our own lives. And on what grounds and on what authority would he do this? You see, this ask... This demand of Christ of what is necessary to follow him screams the first commandment that states, you shall have no other gods beside me. 
Christ is the God-man. He is Emmanuel, God with us. The great I am, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. When he speaks, he speaks as God. And when he commands, he commands as God. We as Christians who read scripture so often and frequently should not be so quick to forget this. This passage cries out that we serve a God who is an all-consuming fire, and Christ is the incarnation of this God in flesh. Um, And not only expects, but demands his followers to give all of themselves to him. There is not one area of our lives that is off-limits to the Lord. He makes it abundantly clear that to belong to him means everything that we are. As we continue to work through this passage tonight, Please let this be the lens upon which we understand of what is being asked of here. That is Christ, the holy God incarnate, that is speaking, that is asking, that is calling people to be his disciples. And so would we hear his words and would we take them to heart? So what is it then? Is the holy son of God asking us to hate our family and even our own lives? You can probably imagine the rebuttals that the crowd was ready to make upon hearing what was commanded. Such as, um, doesn't the fifth commandment state to honor father and mother? Or, Christ, haven't you said in other places that your teaching is to love your neighbor as yourself? And both of these are really very valid questions that we should ask. Um, Is Christ and his teaching somehow commanding us to break the law of God? And the short answer is no, um, actually quite the contrary. Christ, by stating that we must hate, is in no way contradicting or compromising what is commanded within Scripture. Rather, Christ is speaking rhetorically for the purpose of contrasting what it looks like to love him in comparison to the other loves that are within our lives. By stating negatively love for family and love for self, he is emphasizing what ought to be the ultimate priority, which is love for God. That is why Christ sums up the law of God as to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like this, and that we love our neighbors as ourselves. However, our love for both self and neighbor should in no way come close to our love for God. Christ is emphasizing that to follow him, your love for the Lord should be so great that in comparison, it looks like hate for your family. Now, I want to unpack what I I mean by this. In God's economy and how he has structured the world to be, there is no contradiction in love for God and love for family. Actually, they go hand in hand. As we grow in love and devotion for the Lord, our love and devotion for family also abounds. They move together, never competing with another or rivaling each other, but staying steady in their rightful places. It is when this balance is thrown off that we are no longer loving our family, but actually doing what is terrible for them. If you want to mistreat your family and not care for them, then love them more than you love God. Serve them more than you serve God then you will find that issues and problems arise because we were never made to worship our family or ourselves for that matter, but God alone. By having God rightly prioritized, we then love our families and ourselves in the way that God has has designed it to be. And this love is a, a genuine love. It is a pure love. And many of us have family members who are hard to love, but also will probably state something uh, such as like, if you want to love me, do X, or I feel the most love when you're doing Y. And so as Christians, we have not only the true understanding of and view on love, but the example of it as well in Christ. 
um, you might find that how God commands you to love people will actually be in contradiction to how they want to be loved. But thus again, we love and serve God first and foremost, and he informs us how it is we ought to love and serve our family members. So why such harsh language does Christ use towards family in one's own life? As R.C. Sproul observes, he says this, that the single most frequent reason people uh, negotiate and compromise the gospel of Christ is to please man. If there was to be a reason to not follow Christ, to reject his gospel and not become a disciple, is this, the fear of man. Christ knows that a follower who seeks to please man will not be one who speaks boldly and faithfully. That is why allegiance and worship to him alone is an absolute must, to the point that love for self and for family could never even come close to rivaling that of the love for God. If we can quickly turn to Exodus 32, we will have a very clear picture of what this could potentially look like. Exodus 32 is the chapter, a story that most of us know of the golden calf, of Moses leaving the Hebrews and coming back with the Ten Commandments and finds that the People of God are worshiping a golden calf under Aaron's supervision. I'm going to read from verse 25 to the end. And this is Moses' response when he returns. He says, And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose, to to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. So don't hear my words and go home and kill your unbelieving family member. That is not what... Christ is asking or is desiring in this. But we see in the story of Exodus a a clear um, contrast of the loyalty and service to serve God at the cost of even sacrificing family. Now, we don't sacrifice our family or anyone for that matter nowadays, and we most certainly shouldn't. But it should be such that we are so loyal to serve God that family will not come in between that in any way, shape, or form. Now, that doesn't mean we forsake family, but rather, rightfully, as we love the Lord, then we love our family in proper relation to that. So, rather, we cut off family before we cut off the Lord. In the same way that we would cut off a good and healthy limb that we see this teaching throughout the New Testament. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. For it is better for you to go to uh, heaven with members... uh, cut off than it is for you to go to hell with your body intact. And so likewise, and with our family, that is a good rule of thumb. But then this goes into the personal that Christ is now exhorting of hating your own self, hating your own life. And on this, C.S. Lewis has a very helpful quote from his book, Mere Christianity, and it goes like this. For a long time, I used to think this a silly, straw-splitting distinction. How could you hate what a man did and not hate the man? But years later, it occurred, to me about, it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I had been doing this all my life, namely myself. 
However much I might dislike my own cowardice or conceit or greed, I went on loving myself. There had never been the slightest difficulty about it. In fact, the very reason why I hated these things was that I loved the man. Just because I loved myself, I was so sorry to find that I was the sort of man who did those things. So you hear the confliction of C.S. Lewis of that quote, you know, hate the sinner, hate, hate the sin, love the sinner. And how could this be is what kind of C.S. Lewis is wrestling with when he realized that he has been doing this for himself all along, that he hates his sin, but he loved the sinner and himself. And so we could easily argue that there is no one that man cares about more than ourselves. If we are hungry, we feed ourselves. If we need rest, we'll go to bed. We will go to great lengths to make sure that we are cared for. As much of our life as we can control is comfortable and safe. What Christ is asking of here um, to hate one's own life is not to beat yourself up and to despise who you are, but rather is to prioritize the Lord and others over your own. And again, the love for God is not in contradiction with love for self. It is God who lays out what is best for man, not man. This is why Christ can say in other places that those who lose their life will gain it for his sake. Because we were made for God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question, what is the purpose of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Forever. The, next, the other hard teaching that comes from this, as I just read, is for whoever does not bear my, his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Christ's audience would have understood well what Christ was getting at here, what he meant when he said this. The cross was the capital punishment of the Roman Empire to bring about the greatest punishment on lawbreakers. Christ's audience would have heard these words and understood that Christ was stating that to follow him meant following him even to death by the government, which many of them would go on to do, many disciples would to be martyred for the faith. Christ gives his teaching before he himself even went to the cross. It's hard for us to imagine that as we see this, we know exactly what Christ means when talking about his own cross, but for the audience, for those hearing it, this is before the cross. And so they have no picture, the same picture that we do. And so this is before um, the concept of Messiah, any of his disciples grasp the idea of the Messiah needing to die. So we as Christians who live in a time post the cross, Understand that we today must also bear our own cross. It is true that some of us could potentially be martyred for our faith, as we see in Revelation 6, that the blood of the martyrs are crying out from beneath the throne of God, and they are told to wait for there is still yet more to join them. So there still will be more martyrs in, until Christ returns, and that could be some of us. But there's also a real spiritual sense to um, Christ's teaching, and that is this, and he says to bear the cross. It's all who would follow Christ must experience the death penalty. And this is where the cost of discipleship is understood, is at the cross. Christ commands that each of us must bear our own cross, not his nor someone else's, but our own. We each have a cross to bear, and all, our, all of our crosses will look differently depending on who we are and how we are hardwired. The purpose of the cross is this, to die to self, to kill sin, to remove all dross and impurities that exist in our current flesh. It is through death that we find life, and that is the picture of baptism. To be put to death and to be resurrected, the, the old self to be put away and the resurrected into, with Christ into new life. We cannot have resurrection if we do not have death. 
And although there is a physical resurrection that awaits us, awaits the saints one day, there is also a spiritual resurrection that all must experience that they are to be found with Christ, to be his disciples on this side of eternity. And as Forrest Brown, our planting pastor, has said, he said, our crosses, the cost of discipleship, are uniquely heavy for different people for, for uniquely different reasons. There are no two crosses alike, although all crosses are producing the same outcome, and that is holiness, that is conformity into the image of Christ. So Christ now, in this passage, gives us three parables, parables that come with consequences in order to help us better understand what it means to count the costs. And so the first one, found starting in verse 28, for which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. It was common for people in this day and age to build towers, and the purposes of the towers were to be security towers, to watch over the land, to watch over the garden, to watch over the farm from any intruders, whether that be animals or beasts or man. Um, but the towers were also symbols of wealth and power, so very quickly they could become a very elaborate and look more than what is necessary for the function of just being a guard tower. Um, thus, they were on display for all to see. You could tell very easily and quickly when your neighbor was building a tower, because it's a tower, it goes up, and as it goes up, it's easier to see. Um, so just like most construction in human history, you can't just wake up one day and decide to build something that is substantial. Um, usually people don't have the skill set or the wisdom or the tools necessary for do it. It's also, um, to, if you want to be up substantial, you need to gather all the resources to get everything that you need. Um, there's much that needs to be done to be considered, to be organized, to be planned out. I know for Christmas hardwoods, it's we do our, um, a couple months in advance, we'll go forth and we'll do an estimate and then we'll put them on a schedule. That's usually three months out and then we'll order the wood that they want and then we're sand and we'll stain samples. It doesn't happen overnight. No project rarely happens overnight that is of substantial worth. And so there's much to be considered and the greater the build, the greater the project and the greater the consideration must be before starting it. And so how much more consideration should we give to sacrificing our lives to devotion to God? Matthew Henry states it well when he says that those that intend to build this tower must sit down and count the costs. Let them consider that it will cost them the mortifying of their sins, even the most beloved lusts. It will cost them a life of self-denial and watchfulness and a constant course of holy duties. It may perhaps cost them their reputation among men, their estates and liberties, and all that is dear to them in this world even life itself. So we see that the consequences of not finishing what we have started is mockery. Many of us have done this without probably realizing, talking about other people. We all know people who in the beginning of their faith seem to be on a mountaintop and that there would be no end to their continual growth for the things of God, for them to be more and more involved in spiritual matters. But as a week turns to months and the months turns to years, uh, they go back to their lifestyle as before, uh, before their profession of faith. And although they never stop necessarily claiming their faith and claiming to be Christians, that what was once there, this initial joy and passion, has seemed to be gone. 
This is also true with so many celebrity pastors in the world who had great and powerful platforms and later get disqualified from the ministry or get found out as major liars or deceivers. Our conversations about these sorts of people tend to be negative and we do not hold them in high regards. And they are, they are at one time seem to have a flame that would never be put out, even maybe boasted in it and why they would do what they would do in service to God. It's also true that there are many of us here in this room that say that we will start doing X for God in a moment of great inspiration, only to eventually not to do it, to lose interest in it, and to not have that passion at all. As Christians, it should, be, it should not just be our desire to not only be saved by God, but also to be used by Him. There are many who have wasted and squandered what has been given to them either by pursuing one's own selfish ambition or by being passive and doing nothing. The Lord has given us so many wonderful gifts, talents, passions, and ambitions that are unique to each of us. We are not to simply waste them, but rather put them to work diligently, intentionally, to the glory of God and to see His kingdom come. But also it is worth noting that we are in great need of them. We are in need of each other. I can sing, but I cannot sing. I love to sing, but I cannot sing. And thus, although I would lead us in worship, I'm thankful for your guys' sake, I don't need to. But I'm thankful we have Carrie and Luke and Megan and everyone else who plays in the band as well. In order for me to enjoy a musical worship service, I am in need of them for everyone else to enjoy as well. And so all of us have been giving, given talents and gifts that we are not to waste, that we are not to squander, but rather we are to use them to the glory of God, but also for the service of other people. We are, bless you, Shawnee. We, <laughs> and so we are to give what the Lord has given us for the purpose and service of others, and we are in need of one another. Christians, will we not waste what God has given us and use all of it for Him? And thus, uh, a takeaway is this, that we should be patient with those that we are discipling, those that we are evangelizing to, and to ourselves. Counting the cost is a weighty matter, one that people do not always come to overnight. We must be patient with those who we are ministering to, not making the cost cheap, not watering down our gospel message, but rather being faithful to consistently be advocating for truth in the lives of those around us and encourage them to pursue Christ. It is so often that as we are evangelizing to our friends and coworkers, and as we are doing ministry and Bible study with other um, people within the church, we can put false expectations upon people as to where they are to be in growth, how quickly they are to overcome, or overcome sin, how much they should be involved within the church. And all of us count the cost differently. All the, and all of us must count the cost, but all of us count the cost differently. And it's, again, it's harder and more expensive for certain people for different reasons. And so thus, we should be patient and trust that if the Lord is truly at work within their lives and is stirring their hearts, then in His timing, He will bring them to a place of acceptance of the faith as well as maturity and growth into the things of God. But likewise, um, we should be patient with ourselves. We see in Scripture how the apostles failed the Lord consistently. Even though they, they walked with the Lord, they, they sat under his teachings, but yet they fail him over and over again. And so to bear the cross as Christians, as we are commanded to even now, um, we will fall so short of the standard. And we will be like Peter who denies Christ and 
and so many of the other disciples and their failings. So we will not spend out our time as we ought, and we will not give as we should, we will not be as obedient as he has asked of us. Nonetheless, we keep building on the foundation that Christ has laid. Patience is required in order to count the cost and to bear the cross. The second parable, found in verse 31, it says, Or, what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. In this parable, we see that a king with a smaller army is counting the cost and is asking himself if he is capable of beating an army that is by far superior to him. When considering this, it becomes evident relatively quickly that this king realizes that he is no match for the king with the greater army. And we get in verse 32 that there is an urgency now that this conclusion has been made. There's now one of two choices to be had. The king of the smaller army can fight and he will surely be destroyed or he can surrender and suffer the consequences of this loss. Similarly, every man is confronted with these two choices when it comes to serving the Lord. Um, the first choice is to rebel against the Lordship of Christ Man, out of hatred towards God, would rather fight a losing battle, believing foolishly that they can live without God, attempting to overthrow Him or prove Him wrong. For their willful rebellion against their Creator, they will face punishment. They will be destroyed. The other option is a total surrender. It is to recognize that there is no chance of escaping this greater King. We know that all surrendering parties in the history of man have absolutely no say in what does or doesn't happen. In a total surrender, you must suffer the consequences of whatever the winning party decides. And so with God, to be in a place of total surrender before Him means that there is no part, no aspect, or sphere of our lives that is off-limits to the Lord. Every pulse and desire of the heart, the entirety of our soul, Every thought, dream, and our imagination, as well as every part of the physical body, is to be brought under the Lordship of Christ as part of the negotiation for our terms of peace. But it's, but it's not just all that we are, but it's also all that we have, as you see in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. There is no bargaining with God. All that is ours is his. This includes the gender that he made us with, our talents and gifts and passions that we have. It is who we ought to marry. It is how our households are to be ran. It's what we do for work, where we decide to live, all of our ambitions, our money, our dreams. All of it is surrendered to Christ. Nothing is off limits for him to have, off limits for him to have and to use in your life. And so often our temptation to keep certain parts of our lives hidden or away from God as if that were possible. We as Christians constantly find changes happening in our lives. We get different jobs, we enter into new seasons, we start different hobbies. To decide to follow Christ is not necessarily a one-time thing, but rather a daily one. We should constantly be asking ourselves if, if what we have in our lives is in, it's in rightful place before the Lord. With new seasons come new temptations. To withhold from the Lord what is His or to idolize something to a place where it does not belong. 
Uh, yeah, doesn't make sense. Would we make it a regular pattern or considering all that has been given to us and humbly ask the Lord what or how it is that he desires us to steward it? And that moves us into our third parable of the salt. Verse 34 says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. We know from the Sermon on the Mount that Christians are referred to as the salt of the earth. That they would use salt to both act, they, this, the Jewish people at this time, would use salt as, for two reasons. To one, to act as a uh, preservant agent, preservant agent, that's the word, to keep meat and other food from spoiling, but also as a season to make food savory, to give it taste. Christians here, Christ here likes, likens Christians to salt in that we are to persevere, not to lose our saltiness, lest it gets thrown away, lest we lose our, our purpose and our function. And this is different from the first parable of the building of the tower. The first parable is addressing wasting, um, not stewarding what has been given to us. This parable is talking more about, um, let's say, apostates, or those who walk away from the faith altogether. God never saves someone just for them to be unsaved. Scripture is clear that those who the Lord sets out to save will be brought into the fold. For Christ says that not a single sheep will be forsaken by him. Nonetheless, we have a warning here to not lose faith. The parable is communicating that once salt has lost its saltiness, it is of no value and cannot be restored. One commentator likens it to the idea of a balloon with a hole in it. That there's a hole in it and I tell you to put air back into it, you can't do it. It's, it's impossible. Likewise, when salt has lost its saltiness, you can't just restore the flavor to it. It is impossible. And so Christ, speaking to the crowd, is driving home what is expected of someone who would call themselves as a disciple. So often, people start following Christ not realizing what it will be, that it will be costly. And when confronted with that, they leave the faith. But that is why, echoing the words of Paul throughout Scripture, we must persevere. We must Run the race and finish it. It says in Hebrews 10, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure with him. But we, as Christians are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. God has great displeasure towards those who shrink away and out of their faith. Would we as Christians heed the warning and do all that we can to make sure we are not found apart from Christ on the great day of judgment? So then we, what can we conclude from all this and these, the, the cost of discipleship to bear the cross and these three parables that Christ gives us? And is this, is the cost of discipleship is a weighty matter, one that needs to be overwhelming as well as consuming. When we are confronted with Christ's teaching and what is expected of us, we have great reason to be without hope and be confronted consistently with our shortcomings and failures as to what he commands. If all of this was to be considered and done by our own strength and wisdom, then we should surely despair. In light of each parable and the consequences, um, I'd like to point to a couple promises that we have within Scripture 
um, promises that God has given us to his children as those who are found in him and those in Christ. So we all must bear our own cross, um, but this is not the same as what Christ has done. See, Christ on the cross does not bear and suffer his sins, but the sins of his people. He, the, the spotless Lamb of God, was a perfect sacrifice because of his perfect obedience to the law of God, having no sin within him. Christ, Christ's cross purchases our freedom, our salvation. The cross we bear does not bring about salvation, but rather brings about change and sanctification to be specific. We must bear our cross because we must kill sin. And we do this joyfully and gladful, gladly, for we know there is no longer any condemnation for our sin, but only forgiveness. The cross doesn't become a burden that is unnatural to us, but rather, through the power of the Spirit, a great delight that we pursue out of love and gratitude for the Lord. Thus, we should joyfully and often as possible count the cost to consider what can be brought under greater submission to the Lordship of Christ to worship and praise His wondrous name. This is amplified even more when in the first parable, the consequences of not finishing is mockery. And we know that as Christians, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Or as Paul says in Philippians, that he, Christ, who begins a good work within us, will see it through to completion. So yes, we will fail and fall short, but our God will not. Or do we not realize that surrendering to the kingship of Christ is not a loss, but a gain? He does not crush us or destroy us, but rather invites us, those who are heavy laden and offers us rest, stating that his yoke that is upon us is easy and his burden is light. That is why Paul proclaims that whatever gain he had, he counts it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, counting everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus his Lord. For his sake, Paul says, I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And lastly, we know this, that when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, he who have, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. As Christians, as followers of Christ, we are to pick up our cross. And this is what defines us as disciples. And the, the counting the cost is nothing in comparison when we see the, the, the sacrifice of Christ and how he counted the cross. Starting from the, the suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane when he goes to pray and the Father's presence is no longer there and tears of blood flows. He, he, he sweats blood out of it. And we, when we look at what Christ has done and we see his obedience, we see what he accomplished on the cross, and we know why he did it for the joy set before him, 
that motivates us to bear our own cross, to be obedient to the word. Not in a sense of legalism or works, uh, faith, or salvation by works, but rather we do it out of thanksgiving and gratitude. And so thus we must recognize and look to the cross of Christ all the more to be encouraged, to be motivated, to bear our own cross and to live for him. Would you please join me in prayer? Almighty God, thank you for this Lord's Day, an opportunity to gather and to worship your wondrous name. Lord, you call us to do things that are impossible for us to do. Lord, when we're confronted with all your commandments and all that it is that you ask of us and the standard of perfection that you demand of us to live by, we so easily and quickly fall so short, God. And so, Father, I pray that you do not lead us to despair, you do not let our hearts fall for a lack of faith, but rather, O oh Lord, you will turn our eyes, turn our gaze upon Jesus as we sang earlier. Lord, when we consider all that it is that you accomplish, all that it is that you suffered through, Lord, the, the lashings and the, the mockery and the shame and all it is that you bore, Lord, the sins of the world upon your shoulders, our sins with you, God. Lord, how can we not be led to thanksgiving? How can we not be led to gratitude? And so, Father, I pray that you would work in and through that, Lord, for us to delight in the opportunity to suffer as you did and to bear our own cross, O oh Lord. And this is for our good. It is for the purpose of removing all the sin, all the dross, all the impurities, and conforming us more and more and greater to the image of your Son. And so, Father, would we not shy away from the cross? Would we not try to have you without the cross, Lord, but would we rejoice in it and all that it does, all that it means, and all that it accomplishes? Praise you, Lord, for your perfect obedience. Praise you, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God and your sacrifice. Help us just continue to overflow into that praise tonight. It's your holy name, ask and pray all these things. Amen.